Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia Lamanna. We have reached the end of season four, which is bittersweet, to be honest. I have absolutely adored making this season and I really hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you're new to the show, then there are loads and loads of episodes for you to sink your teeth into. And if you are old to the show and you've listened to every single episode, I'm very, very grateful And do feel free to slide into my DMs at ATST podcast to let me know what you'd like to see from the podcast next. Today, I have my first ever return guest to the show, and it is the wonderful Tessa Khan. Tessa is an international climate change and human rights lawyer, campaigner and strategist. She is the founder and executive director of climate action organization Uplift, who are on a mission to support and energise the movement for a just and fossil fuel-free UK. Tessa spent more than 15 years supporting grassroots, regional and international movements for justice and has served as an expert advisor to UN human rights bodies and national governments around the world. Since we last spoke, Tessa recorded an unmissable TED Talk titled How Can We Escape Soaring Energy Bills? Stop Using Fossil Fuels, which is a must watch and is linked in the show notes. Today, we're going to be speaking about fossil fuels and climate breakdown and what it means for our collective future. I have had so many requests to create a YouTube video and record a podcast based around the topic of having children during a climate crisis. And honestly, I've been so reluctant to speak about this because it is just such a deeply personal, complex and nuanced decision. What's more, it is often rife with eco-fascism and rooted in eugenics and racism, which is what I mainly wanted to focus on with Tessa, who graciously said that she would be happy to discuss it today and to explain eco-fascism and help debunk the overpopulation myth. So I'm not sure if this episode will provide you with the answer that you're necessarily looking for, because that is your decision to make. And I know that if you listen to this podcast, you are someone who cares a lot and thinks deeply. So my hope is that it affirms your want to join the fight against the oil and gas industries. And just know that I'm sure that whatever decision you decide to come to is the right decision for you. So here we have a conversation about eco-fascism, fossil fuels, the energy crisis, big oil's profits and the vitally important Stop Rosebank campaign, as well as this question about reproducing in a world that can feel pretty scary. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Yet again, I am so grateful to Tessa for coming back on the podcast and for closing this season. Here's Tessa Khan on All The Small Things. Tessa, welcome back to All The Small Things. I think you're my first return 
guest, which is very, very exciting. Wow. What a privilege. (laughs) Well, when someone says to me, hey, listen, I'd like to come back on the show. I'm ready (laughs) because every single person that's been on all the small things has been someone that I've admired and looked up to. And it's always a joy to spend time with with those people. So welcome back. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really delighted to be back. And yeah, thanks for making the time to chat again. So let me know, has your morning ritual updated since we last spoke? Where are you at with morning rituals to help you feel grounded to start your day these days? So nothing's changed in a kind of significant way. I think I just found something that works. So it's still pretty much a sequence of waking up, checking my WhatsApp messages for any messages from my loved ones in other countries and then unfortunately checking my work email for messages from people I don't love. Um, (laughs) I'm working on kind of pushing that towards the end of the sequence and then and then like meditating and doing some exercise um, and reading the paper and then starting work. It's so hard to not look at your phone in the morning though isn't it? I know I think all it does is Um, interferes with some pretty important headspace that you need to preserve in the mornings. I find it makes meditation harder as well. As if it wasn't hard enough already. Now you're thinking (laughs) about work. Exactly. So today we're going to be talking about having children in a climate crisis. This is something that I've been asked to speak about many times and I know it's a really complicated and deeply personal topic. So today we're going to be talking about it in terms of the climate crisis and the fossil fuel industry. And I wanted to start by asking you if you could explain to us what eco-fascism means. It's a term I think that has a pretty broad definition. It's used by people to mean slightly different things. But I think in in general, when people talk about eco-fascism, they talk about environmental goals being married together with a far-right or sort of ultra-nationalist agenda. I think the term started to really crop up a few years ago when there started to be instances of, you know, acts of violence that were then justified on the grounds of environmentalism. So the shooter in Christchurch in New Zealand, you might remember, who shot about 50 people in a mosque. Mm. He then also had a kind of treatise on environmentalism. And um, so that's one kind of manifestation of eco-fascism. It's also talked about in the context of countries that have progressive climate policies, but then also really regressive approaches to immigration, which we've seen in some instances. And then, of course, you know, in the context of what we're talking about, it's about, you know, restrictions on reproductive rights as a way of advancing environmental goals. Thank you for explaining that. And I must say, I feel like there is a lot of information being pushed and surprisingly, I find, by mainstream media, implying that one way we can curb climate breakdown is, in inverted commas, population control. Why is this upholding a harmful eugenicist narrative? Yeah, so that's a narrative that just won't die. Um, You know, it's kind of been around in the environmental movement for decades. 
and now, as you say, is cropping up a lot in the context of, you know, solutions to the climate crisis. It's so misconceived on so many levels. I mean, the first thing to say is that there is a massively unequal level of consumption and carbon emission between different countries and also different groups of people within countries. So there was some research done by Oxfam recently that showed that the world's richest 1% have been responsible in recent decades for the same amount of carbon emissions as the bottom 50% of the world's population. And when you hear these arguments that we need to control population to decrease carbon emissions, people are generally talking about controlling population in developing countries, you know, in Africa and Asia, where there's this perception that people have huge families and that's the problem. But of course, you know, carbon emissions in the global north are significantly higher on a per capita basis and also on an absolute basis than per capita emissions or national emissions in a lot of those countries. So, you know, but the thought of people in the UK or the US or Europe, you know, women being restricted from having control over their reproductive future is not what those people are talking about when they're talking about population control. They're talking about stopping people in Bangladesh or Nigeria from having kids, even though the per capita emissions of those countries are so much lower. It's interesting because I was looking at some of the headline articles that are pushing this narrative and you just need to look at the photos that they use to try and demonstrate their point. And it is really gross because the images that they use are of communities, mainly black and brown communities in the global south. And that means that this is, you know, deeply racist and rooted in eugenics. So for listeners who haven't thought about this before, I would say that now when you see these articles, you won't be able to unsee the inherent racism because it is just so blatant. Our global population is currently sitting at 8 billion. And according to the UN, it's expected to reach 8.6 billion in 2030, 9.8 billion in 2050, and 11.2 billion in 2100. What does this mean in terms of the climate crisis? Can we live sustainably with this many people on Earth? You know, we can if we address the overconsumption of people who are the richest in the world. So there's no lack of natural resource. There's no real barrier to everybody leading a life that is sufficient if we address the massive amount of privilege and power, and therefore overconsumption at the top. It's about redistribution. It's not about whether or not we can all live lives that are, yeah, that are fulfilling and that are full of abundance. You know, there's an expression that what we should be aiming for is public abundance and private sufficiency. You know, that's a model of a society where we have amazing public services, where we have, you know, great public transport, great leisure facilities that are communal and people within their own homes don't have huge homes and multiple cars and live lives that are really consumption driven, but that we share those facilities and services collectively. And that's frankly 
one of the only ways we're going to be able to address the climate crisis anyway. And it is and it is happening. You know, I mean, people realise the importance of increasing the quality of public infrastructure and making sure that we don't just leave it to individuals to each have their own X. You know, we just have one really great thing that everybody can share. So that's that's a vision of the future that I think, you know, people are already building towards and is the only way that we're going to be able to make sure that everybody leads a fulfilling life and I'm I'm excited about that vision actually. Yeah it definitely does make a lot more sense doesn't it to have more of a kind of like sharing economy but I do I, I would encourage listeners to listen back to one of the first episodes from this season about billionaires with Swati Deepak. There's a large contingent of privileged people who are potentially in that kind of top one percent causing a lot of carbon emissions that are truly thinking deeply about this but then I just feel like we're living in a billionaire's world and those kind of like white lotus types genuinely don't care and only want more mansions more private jets more overconsumption. yeah I mean that's it's definitely what the culture is pushing us towards right I mean every signal we get culturally is to have more stuff have bigger stuff have newer stuff so we can't leave it to individuals to make the right choice Although, of course, if you know what the right thing is to do, you should absolutely do it. But that's why ultimately it's got to be governments and policymakers who drive the change that we need. Because, yeah, as you say, otherwise the culture is really pushing us in the other direction. Absolutely. Um, Some people are choosing not to have children because they fear future extreme weather events that their children might have to endure. And it feels to me like there's a growing movement of young people who are thinking more critically about you know whether or not they want to have kids in relation to the climate why do you think this is such a valid concern and and do you also feel like it's something that a lot of people are kind of experiencing and grappling with and going back and forth with perhaps more than they used to yeah definitely I think it's a really live conversation among people at the moment who would otherwise kind of be at an age or at a stage in their life when they might start a family. And I get it. I mean, I think, you know, the point that you make about the world being a really uncertain place. So it's not about the contribution that having a child might make. It's about the world that you're bringing your child into. And I mean, I definitely understand that insofar as I think that even if we get on the right track ultimately in terms of our climate goals and staying within safe climate limits. There's already a bit of fair bit of damage baked in. I mean, already we're seeing so much destruction and so much extreme weather. And we don't know how all of these different weather and ecosystems interact. So people talk about tipping points where if you kind of pass a particular temperature threshold, um, it then sets off a kind of chain reaction or feedback loop of other changes in ecosystems and it then becomes very hard to control what happens afterwards. And it may be that we breach those tipping points and we don't know what the world will look like. I mean, there are models, but it's frightening for sure. I also really worry about the way that our democracy will hold up, to be honest, if those sorts of challenges start to, to happen. You know, the, I, I'm, I don't know that our institutions are robust enough to not default to 
the worst tendencies in our political systems and I wouldn't want a child to grow up in that kind of world, you know, where where increasingly anyway, I mean, climate change aside, you're either in the haves or the have-nots, you know, um, from an inequality perspective. So I, I totally get that. I get the concern, definitely. I am someone who is very nervous about what is happening to our planet and political systems right now. And I'm also very nervous about what the future holds. And I recently had a conversation with one of my best friends. And I think the outcome we came to is one way to diminish or to kind of decrease all of our nervousness around this is to get involved with climate action. And would you agree with that? Do you think that a good way for people to perhaps reduce some of their nervousness around this issue is for them to feel more actively engaged in organising around social justice and climate justice? Yeah, 100%. I mean, getting involved and kind of being in a space with other people who have the same values as you, who are fighting for the same things that you are, will make you feel better about the world, like no question. And it will make you more hopeful and it will make it more likely that we'll succeed. You know, so from every perspective, it's the right thing to do. I think from a kind of more selfish perspective in terms of how it will make you feel, but then also from a kind of bigger structural perspective, like that's how the change is going to happen. I think we have a kind of idea in our minds about what activism looks like, but you are so heavily involved in this work, but I think maybe to an outsider, the job that you do isn't like traditional activism, if you know what I mean. Like it's much more kind of like governmental, policy focused. What I'm trying to say is, activism looks very, very different than one thing, right? Like it can be a multitude of things. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we've got to kind of pull every lever we've got at the moment to challenge the system that we have and the system that's kind of creating all of the crises that we're experiencing at the moment. And so, yeah, that absolutely involves getting out on the streets and creating public pressure and noise that way. But it also involves meeting with decision makers and putting on a suit and having all the facts at your fingertips and sort of kind of engaging with people on that level. And it involves taking people to court, you know, involves a million different things. And there's something that everyone can do to contribute to all of the different tools in the toolbox that we're going to have to use if we're going to win, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really about playing to your strengths, isn't it? And thinking about like, right, what area of expertise do I have? I'm going to follow that. Um, Listeners will probably have heard the phrase, the most sustainable action you can take is not to have children. I I actually think I have peddled that. I have a feeling that I said that um, in a YouTube video, probably about four or five years ago now. And I feel a little bit sticky about it. But what do you think about this phrase, the most sustainable action you could take is not to have children? Is this a myth? And yeah, what do you think about it? I have to say that that phrase makes me very uncomfortable from a kind of principled perspective because it's about restricting women's reproductive rights. And, you know, that way terrible things lie, basically. Women have fought so hard to have control over their bodies and control over their decision to have children or not have children. I mean, that's been a huge fight and it's not something we should ever give ground on 
because if you live in a society where you don't have that as a right, where you don't enjoy that right, it's a completely different ball game from the sorts of things we take for granted in a country like the UK. And, you know, this is a live fight that's happening in states in the US where there's been a massive crackdown on the right to abortion, for example, um, you know, and there are lots of societies where culturally it's very difficult to access contraception or whatever. And that is just, you know, I mean, we ha- absolutely have to hold the line that women should be the ones that make decisions about their reproductive capacities and, you know, whether or not they have children. So I would really refrain from ever saying anything that suggests that there's a policy reason for for women to make X decision about their reproductive future. I think that's dangerous. So that's kind of the first thing that I would say, like our autonomy and our control over our bodies is paramount. What was really scary as well is I think often we see ourselves in the UK as so separate to the US. But what was terrifying about Roe versus Wade was that there were so many Tory MPs in the UK who agree, who agree that our rights when it comes to abortion should be reduced. And that is really scary. Anyway, sorry for that interjection. Back to you. No, no, not at all. Um, So, and then I guess on to kind of the sort of broader question about maybe from a slightly more technical perspective and not a moral perspective, whether or not you should decide not to have kids because that's the, the right thing to do from a sustainability perspective. I think the most important thing to say is that, you know, if you're going to have children, A, that's your right, and B, there are definitely ways to have children that ensure that they aren't in the 1% that's really the root of the problem, you know? I mean, aside from the fact that if all of the people who are actually taking the time to think about whether or not having children is sustainable or not sustainable, if none of them have children, the only people who are having children are the people who don't give a shit about the planet. So that's probably not something, you know, in general, people I know having kids who care about the environment are not the problem, you know. Yeah. I just think it's a, such a huge burden to put on people when they're thinking about something that's so deeply personal to then put it within that bigger agenda. I don't think that's fair and like I said, I think there are much more important decisions that you can make that will determine whether or not we have a sustainable future than whether or not you have a child. Which leads us very, very nicely on to talking about the oil and gas industries um, who are posing the greatest threat to humanity. I am wondering if you could possibly explain to us what the world might look like in 2050 scary question if we don't take the necessary action it's crazy isn't it to think someone sort of said to me that um because you mentioned 2100 and someone born today you know they won't even be 80 by the time 2100 comes around right it's we are talking about the future of people being born today so that's just to say that it's worth taking a longer view like if you are having a kid (laughs) your kid will still be alive and kicking, you know, by all expectations when 2100 comes around. And certainly when 2050 comes around, they'll be in the sort of prime of their adulthood in some ways. And so I think, you know, the question about what the world will look like if we don't take the action that we need to. um, So from a kind of physical environment perspective, the expectations are that a lot of the 
more vulnerable ecosystems that people depend on for livelihoods and for food like coral reefs, for example, that they will more or less be on their way to kind of permanent extinction by 2050. I mean, it's hard to, a lot, most of the kind of climate model projections are about more about what the world looks like at, at 2100. But if you just imagine what's already happening, the fact that we just lived through hottest years on record in the UK, we had the warmest temperatures over the summer that we've ever had. We've had a weird, a weird few months in terms of the winter um, that I'm sure everyone's noticed. And you just continue to escalate that, the frequency of weird weather events. You know, that includes extreme rainfall, extreme heat, um, storms, the frequency of those increasing, but also the intensity of those also increasing. I mean, that is the pattern that we're going to get locked into. And it will also happen in other parts of the world that will inevitably affect us because we live in an interconnected world and we have obligations to people who live in other parts of the world. And as I said, as those things continue to happen, it will really challenge our political system. You know, we're conceivably will be dealing with many millions of climate refugees. And at the moment when that happens, that tends to bring out the worst in our politics and create space for really right-wing ideas and policies. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important that we don't let that happen. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tessa, you've been incredibly busy recently because the world's biggest polluters have just been announcing their vast profits. Shell recently made a record profit of almost 14 billion in 2022, more than double what it raked in in the previous year. And Equinor made a record 75 billion profit during the energy crisis. Why are these profits so disgracefully high and will they ever come down so basically they are high largely because of russia's war against ukraine which has meant that a lot of countries have stopped buying oil and gas from russia which is one of the world's biggest oil and gas exporters russia itself has decided to cut off some of its gas supplies to parts of Europe. I mean, Germany, for example, got a third of its gas from Russia. So kind of overnight, really, they had to scramble to find new ways of meeting that energy demand. But what what that's meant ultimately is that prices have skyrocketed because there is much less supply of those commodities. So it's a great time to be an oil and gas company that isn't in Russia. And People will have seen their energy bills going up in the UK. I mean, we've, we're in the middle of a fuel poverty crisis, despite the fact that the government announced 
the most expensive package of support in terms of trying to keep people's energy bills down over the winter. There are still 7 million households who are going to struggle to turn their heating on this winter. So that's a catastrophe. But oil and gas companies are having a great time because if our bills are high, their profits are high because they're selling us oil and gas. And those are things that, you know, I mean, in the UK, 85% of homes are heated using gas boilers. So, yeah, it's really, it's really good times for them thanks to war. I mean, just horrendous. I mean, will these profits come down? Is this all going to kind of settle and, and peter off at some point? Not for the foreseeable future, basically. Prices were already kind of going up before Russia invaded Ukraine, and that's because um, of increasing demand for these commodities in different parts of the world. In China, for example, I mean, as these economies develop, people are going to want more of the stuff that we have. And that means that, yeah, there's going to be a squeeze on the supply of those goods. And at the moment, the forecasts are that at least for the next few years, prices will be a number of times higher than they were in, say, 2020. So this is the new normal um, for now. When we talk about the use of oil and gas and like that increased use that you just mentioned, so often I feel like there's another gross rhetoric of like, oh, well, like China are just increasing their usage and like it's their problem. It's not us. We're fine. Like actually our carbon emissions have come down so, so much. And again, it feels like very gross and actually a bit racist. Do you hear this come up a lot? And and what do you have to say about that kind of side of the argument? Definitely. I mean, all the time people are like, but what about China? What about India? <laughs> like, you know, we've done a great job bringing down our emissions and now it's up to them with their billion plus people, you know, to solve the problem. So I guess the first thing to say is that the UK is still in the top 10 historical emitters of greenhouse gases, right, in the world. So I don't care how much you're currently emitting. Since the start of the Industrial Revolution, we have been a massive contributor to the problem. And the other thing to say is that, yeah, our per capita emissions, as in how much carbon we produce per person, compared to somewhere like India, you know, we're multiple fold what the average Indian person's producing, you know, in the course of what they do on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we also in the UK have the resources. We are a rich industrialised country that could do the right thing. I mean, leaving aside the moral argument because of our historical contribution, we absolutely should be leading the way because we've got the money to do it. That's not to say that everybody shouldn't be moving as quickly as possible, but the onus is definitely on the UK and other rich countries that have created the problem historically to still really do their part. Thank you for explaining that so well. The biggest global polluters, companies like Shell and BP, say they are committed to transitioning to green energy. And Actually, I've started seeing sort of shell pop up everywhere as the owners of new electric vehicle charging points. And there's a lot of news articles about this as well. Is this all greenwashing or are they genuinely committed to being part of a green future? 
So the answer is no, they are not. <laughs> That's an easy one. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> no, basically, yeah, they are masters of greenwashing PR. Like my social media feed, if you were an alien and you logged into my Twitter account, you would literally think Shell was a renewable energy company. And that's not the case. If you look at how much money they're putting into renewables compared to oil and gas, like for Shell, for example, their overall sort of quote unquote alternative energy spend is about 12% of their overall investments. And even that, if you actually break the numbers down, it's about 2% that's going on renewable energy like wind and solar. Overwhelmingly, these companies are committed to oil and gas production and BP actually just announced that it's going to reduce its renewable spend. So, so much for the transition, you know, (laughs) like I think it's a bit naive of us to think that these companies that are profit driven in a capitalist economy where they want their shareholders to get maximum returns, that they would do anything other than the thing that's just really means that they're minting it at the moment. And at the moment, that is oil and gas. Oil and gas prices are high. They're making tons of money. So all of the incentives are for them to continue doubling down on oil and gas production. And renewable energy companies are the ones that are driving the energy transition. We can't count on the oil and gas industry to disrupt an industry that is making it billions in profits. Like that, in my view, is a hugely just misconceived position. I only recently found out that it was the oil and gas industry that actually invented the term carbon footprint yeah exactly yeah because they want you to worry about plastic bags that you're using while they continue to open up massive new oil and gas fields it is so so hateful now when you were last on the podcast we spoke lots about the stop cambo campaign and things have progressed since then so can you give us an update Yeah, absolutely. So the good news is that we won that campaign collectively. I just think it shows that we can actually win this fight. You know, it is David and Goliath, if you think about the resources and the power of the oil and gas industry, and as you say, the fact that they're making $40 in profits, but they are not invulnerable. (laughs) They can be defeated by people like us. So that's the important thing to take away. Basically, Shell which is the company that wanted to open up Cambo, decided to withdraw its investment in the field and it cited a bunch of reasons for doing that. But really it's because we had made it too risky for them. The level of kind of opposition publicly and politically that the movement generated just meant that they were like, you know what, this is too harsh for us. And so that is something that we can do. And that not only affected Cambo, but it really affected the way that people think about investing in oil and gas in the UK. There was a lot of press that was just like, hmm, maybe this is not the right place because the environmental movement are really going to basically give us a hard time. So that's amazing. And I think was celebrated globally as being a huge win against, you know, as I said, like a company that has all the PR, all the money, all the political connections in the world, like we can still defeat that machine. So the next big fight, because unfortunately, even though we did manage to, I think, really tank the way that oil and gas companies feel about the UK, then the invasion of Ukraine happened. And as we've discussed, you know, prices have gone up. So oil and gas suddenly looks really attractive again. 
So we've got to kind of send the message again to them that actually if they try to open up big new oil and gas fields in the UK, we will be here to stop them. So the big new fight at the moment is against the Rosebank oil field. So that is the biggest undeveloped oil field in the UK. It's about three times the size of Cambo. So you thought Cambo was bad, like wait until you get a load of Rosebank. It's also a kind of deep water drill in the North Atlantic, so off the coast of Shetland. So that makes it kind of risky because we're in a part of the ocean that is geologically complex and they're drilling very far down. So the kind of environmental risks of that are bad. Plus it's going to cut across a marine protected area, which is outrageous. And also (laughs) the company that is trying to open up Rosebank, which is Equinor, is going to get a half a billion pound subsidy from the UK government together with the other companies involved in the operation for opening up the field. Wow. Equinor is owned, so it's majority owned by the Norwegian government. It's a Norwegian oil and gas company. And that means that our money as UK taxpayers will be going to Norway, where you may have heard they have like a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund. (laughs) They don't need our money. Norwegians are doing great. They have amazing public services. So it's pretty outrageous that there's also that huge subsidy involved. Wow. That is awful. There were some great actions this week in, I think, in Norway, right, with with some activists involved with um, yeah. with Stop Rosebank, which was super powerful. How is it all going? Also, how can we how can we join the fight? How can we help put on pressure? Yeah, so I feel great about it. It's really kicking off at the moment, and as you said, there were a bunch of actions across the UK this week being organised by the Stop Cambo Network that have kind of pivoted to being the Stop Rosebank Network. But there are actions happening all the time. If you're in Norway, get involved. And I think that Equinor is scared and I think we can win. The next few months are really crucial. So basically the government is currently sitting on the decision of whether or not it approves Rosebank. It may approve Rosebank because this government, they're terrible people. (laughs) But even if it does approve, what we can then do is basically, like Cambo, put pressure on Equinor to withdraw, and that would still be us winning that fight. And Equinor actually is sensitive about its reputation, so it's withdrawn from other projects that have become really controversial in Australia, for example, and in other places. So we have a huge job to do, and there's huge potential for us to basically pile on the pressure to make sure that Ideally, the government doesn't approve it, but even if it does, that then Equinor knows that it's not welcome here. The thing that I just cannot comprehend is knowing what we know about the future of the planet, knowing what we all know about the future of the planet, the current state of everything for so many people being in desperate situations. And we have a government who are wanting this kind of thing to happen. These political leaders have families and like I just think what do you say what do you say to your children or what are you going to say to your say future grandchildren who are like hey how did you know this and why did you not stop it like I cannot I cannot comprehend it how are they not thinking about what this will mean for the people that they care deeply about right because you know everyone cares about their family and and what the future of the planet is going to be like for the people that they took a part in you know producing I just can't comprehend it 
I can't. I know. Yeah, it's totally baffling. I mean, I do wonder sometimes if people in positions of power are just like, yeah, the world's going to be pretty messed up, but, you know, we're powerful and rich and so, you know, we'll just get our bunker in New Zealand and we'll just sit this one out, you know. And it also is diluted because no one will escape, you know, a truly climate chaotic world. Food supplies are global. You can't get away on an island without depending on what happens in other parts of the world. Like that's just, yeah, completely diluted. So that should be a bit of a wake up call to them as well. Do you think that this is a pivotal moment and do you feel hopeful? I do think it's a pivotal moment. I think this this year and this kind of very immediate period of time that we're in is pivotal because basically what's happened with global energy supplies and the war in Ukraine over the last year have shown us just how vulnerable our dependency on fossil fuels makes us. It means that, you know, basically people were looking at energy bills in the UK of £4,000. And, you know, climate change is one thing, but the notion that people here, you know, the projections were like that a third of people in the UK would be living in fuel poverty. Like that's that's something that would be happening here right now Um, That's not some future threat. Like these are all of the different costs of our dependency on fossil fuels, not to mention the fact that, you know, being dependent on fossil fuels does mean that in the past we've propped up dictators like Putin and some pretty unsavoury governments in the Gulf like Saudi Arabia and others. You know, there are just all of these reasons why we need to get off fossil fuels that I think in the last year have really crystallised and been made clear. And it has prompted a lot of governments like in Europe, for example, to do what they can. I mean, kind of in an emergency because Russia was cutting off supplies to find alternatives. And so I think we're in this moment where actually the transition could really accelerate and we've got to make sure that uh, because the oil and gas industry also realises that and so they are gearing up to be the ones that end up solving the problem for us. We have to make sure that we're there to kind of confront them and fight them. So I think... We've got a huge opportunity on our hands, actually. Yeah, I think it definitely feels like that as well. And that is a potentially brilliant future changing thing. What do you think some of the kind of most powerful ways we can create and be part of the change look like? Well, yeah, what does that look like to you? There are loads of different things that people can do to contribute to and strengthen the fight. And I think, you know, the way that with the Stop Cambo movement, You know, you can show up to actions, you can write to your MP, you can talk to other people about it. There are just a million small things and big things that everyone can contribute, regardless of what your skills are and how you feel. You know, you don't have to be someone who's confident speaking in public. You don't have to be someone who holds up a sign, you know, in a march. There are just so many ways, digital, you know, offline, that you can get involved in these fights. So I would just really encourage people to kind of join the Stop Cambo, Stop Rosebank coalition. And there are trainings that they hold, welcome calls where basically they set out what people can do. And I just think people will find that there are so many, so many ways to get involved. As someone who puts so much energy into this fight, what's one way that you really try and take care of you? Are you quite a boundaried person? And how do you, how do you put those boundaries in place How do you, yeah, how are you just also making sure that you're in a position where you can continue the fight is what I'm getting to? 
Great question. I have to say that I think in the last couple of years, I've found all of the work that we do to be incredibly energizing. I feel like it's pretty exhilarating, actually, to know that we can change the future of the planet. So that is, to me, incredibly motivating. I mean, you know, I I think, like, regardless of how you feel about the future, you will for sure condemn us to a terrible future if you don't get involved, so just get involved. But I especially am excited at the moment about, you know, what we can collectively achieve. That's a long-winded way of telling you that I don't... I'm not great with boundaries, Venetia. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, but I do, I do like take care of myself. Um, like I'm really conscious of all of the ways in which, you know, your mental health are connected to your physical health and lifestyle. And I always get eight hours sleep a night and I eat well and I just make sure that I'm not doing stuff that I know will kind of lead me on a downward spiral. Yeah, but I, I'm i really, I think just at this moment in my life, I'm really absorbed by it and that to me feels like exactly where I should be right now and I'm sure there will be a moment where I know that I need to pull back a bit more and I'm always conscious of that and I, yeah, I'm just super mindful of the pace that I'm running at and building in breaks. And it helps that my partner is like extremely pro-leisure, like committed to the European, like if it's not a two-month holiday, it's not a holiday, you know. So that's really helpful as well. Tessa, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and for just genuinely being so inspiring and for really fighting the good fight i'm so grateful to you it's a huge pleasure thank you so much i've loved i've loved that conversation thank you so much for listening to this episode and for listening to this season if you're new to all the small things please do listen back to all of my previous episodes i am genuinely so inspired by every single guest i've ever interviewed on this show i have been so touched by their generosity and how much they have given these conversations and they have genuinely altered how I look at life and they have I think helped me become a better person I know that sounds very dramatic but I genuinely feel it so if you are new to this podcast I really hope you enjoy all the conversations that came before this one and until we meet again please do feel free to follow the show on Instagram at ATST podcast and you can keep up with me on pretty much every social media platform out there at Venetia Manor and I just want to say a huge thank you again for your support on this show you really do make it what it is so thank you okay that's it from me wishing you the best possible day and I'll see you soon bye bye